at Defiance Church around this time is that we move from, uh, well, one, if you're new and you came for Leviticus, I'm glad you made it this far. Um, but two, is we move from sort of like what I do is I prepare and read everything I can and dive deep and pray over one story, one snippet from the Bible. And that's what we did in Leviticus, and that's what we did with Ephesians, is we, is we sort of chronologically walked through, um, literally walked through one thing. And so that, for me as a preacher, was this chance to sort of dive in, and those times have perhaps more explanation, more sort of gathering and teaching, more sort of, um, of, of figuring out what's the Bible saying here. That sort of, and then we explore what that means for our lives. One of the things that happens when we enter into the seasons of the church calendar, and this being the first one of this year, is is I sort of switch my preaching to like, do you read? Have you ever read like a devotional, or like had sort of something that you sort of like turn over as sort of a meditation? Like, and so what happens is, and this is since I've taken quite a time off since last year, not last year, but sometime off of doing this, for me, it's like, okay, getting back into the frame of not reading, you know, 300 pages, and then bringing forth the fruit of that labor to share with the congregation so that we can understand the text greater, but to hold forth something like an image or a promise or, or a gift that we can sort of like look at from different angles so that we can, and in, in Mary's term, as we get further into the season, sort of store it up in ourselves. So when we, in the, in the big word for this, is sort of exegetically walk through a text, it's so that we can sort of equip ourselves and that we can move with God to where God has us. Like, that's why we sort of um, surgeon it when we do Leviticus or Ephesians. But when we do something like this, we sort of want to store the image up in ourselves. Like, what is the word or phrase? What is the time that we're doing? What does the thing mean? And so that's the shift that sort of happens today. To what extent any preacher can shift how they preach? That's for you to judge. Um, they're like dogs and new tricks. Um, but that's the point. Um, and so this Sunday is about sort of this, what we heard in the, the reading from Don, the Jeremiah reading, is this promise. It's about promise and hope. And that's in the Luke reading too, is that God's return is coming amongst us, that God is coming back to restore all things. God is coming back to sort of put the final stamp on the work he's begun in Jesus. And so the big word that Christians have for this, and I'll save you $50,000 so that you don't have to go to seminary, is eschatology. Um, you can throw it in the offering. Um, eschatology is the word that they use for this. And so in one way, it's the Left Behind series is an eschatology, right? I don't think the Left Behind series is a very good eschatology, but what it's doing is telling you about the last things. And what the phrase eschatology really means is this sort of study of the last things, this, this sort of way of looking at what does this return look like. We don't talk about that much in the church today. We're almost embarrassed by it. One of the reasons I think why is, is there's a sense in which if you heard what, what was read from Luke today, things are going to change. Things are going to be shaken. Things are going to be restored. And when we hear from John the Baptist next week about this mighty leveling that happens, or that song we sang, uh, the world is about to turn. Like There's this promise that's going to happen. And the problem is, if things are good and things are comfortable, the idea that God's break-in is going to shake everything up doesn't sound as good as news, right? It's, this, it's like, if God could nudge it a little bit better, that would be it. Or if everybody could have access to the same things that I have, that we could all live in sort of my good life, that would be great as well. 
But the idea that God is going to turn things, is that justice is going to be restored in a different way, that doesn't sound as good of news when things are comfortable. And this may come as a shock to some of you, I doubt, <laughs> but we live in one of the more comfortable societies in the history of the earth. And so the idea that, that there's this other hope outside of us that's going to break in and shake things up doesn't sound the same way it did if you're um, in slavery in the ancient world. It doesn't sound the same way as if you're struggling to find food and water during a famine during certain times. It doesn't sound this way if you're, it sounds differently if you're ruled by a dictator like Jeremiah is. And there are no signs of hope available. Except for what he says is this sprout will come up from the ground. God will remember his promise. And so much is in that sprout. But for us, it's like, can't you just buy another one? Can't you just get a bigger sprout? The idea of having your hope hinge on this return and this thing, it doesn't speak to us the same way it does in the other world. So moving on from eschatology, we'll go to sort of two smaller words that I think uh, encapsulate this. And this is sort of the way of thinking about this is that we, as Christians, we live in sort of this already of what God has done. God has already defeated death in Jesus Christ. God has already fulfilled his promises, or at least a, a large portion of them, to Israel in providing Jesus. God has already acted decisively in the world to overturn structures as they are. And yet, at the same time, God has not yet stamped out death as human's final enemy. God has not yet eradicated things like starvation and access to clean water. God has not yet ended slavery, as we can see throughout the, the world today. We sort of don't see it here, but God has not yet ended dictators who rob and steal from their people. God has not yet ended this quest to find a home in the world. And so what Advent, this Sunday of Advent, draws us into is this, this tension between that we exist in the already of what God has done, and yet the not yet also stands there as well. And so if you remember back to the Ephesians sermon, those two timelines, the Gospels, that's, that's sort of the Pauline, Paul's way of thinking about what God's done in Jesus Christ. If you think about it in the Gospel way, this becomes more apparent. You can see how it fits the timelines, but it's not the same structure. That there's this already of what God is fulfilling and doing. And yet there's, there's not yet that we wait in his return that we're waiting for, for something else to happen. And this goes back to the way in which we stand in Advent and look both directions. We look towards the celebration of God's past already acts. But we also look towards the not yet that's to come, the future hope that we have. And the future hope is supposed to be grand, it's supposed to be huge for us. And so we exist in this time. And one of the ways I think is helpful to look about this as we live in Advent is this idea of we live on borrowed time. And living on borrowed time is a phrase we use, like if you're on death row and somebody pardons you, you live on borrowed time, right? If you've had a, a grand diagnosis of cancer or something and you get cleared from that or it's gone or you get healed or something happens, people say, oh, you're on borrowed time, Right? I think what's true for the Christian community is we know that God's coming fulfillment is coming. And what God has already done, the time that we have left is this borrowed time. But in the, in the different, it's a little bit different in the sense that like the other ones are like a pardon, right? You've been pardoned, so now you do this. 
what I think is true for the Christians is we have this new time of unexpected possibilities for us to live in our lives. So the gospel reading for today that Karina read, Katrina read, be impressive if Karina did it. Um, that's her daughter's name. Um, uh, but is that is is that it says that the earth will be shaken, things will be stirred up, that things and wars will be unleashed upon the world, and that what happens is is that for you, for the people Jesus is talking to, you will stand up because salvation in the way that your text had it, um, in other in other translations, redemption is drawing near. Christians, when these things start to get shaken up, when things start to look worse, when things start to get bad, and the world begins to act like it's all falling apart. What happens for the Christians is they, they and, the, and those hearing this promise, is they are to stand up for the time of redemption. The good time of the return of Jesus Christ is drawing near. Gives us a counterintuitive way of looking, too, at borrowed time. As this thing draws close, and the rest of the world wants to panic, we're called in to standing up. We're called in to staying awake, as that passage says. We're called in, one of the, one of the translations of that says, to not let our hearts grow numb with drinking and partying and stuff like that, which is what a, what a message for the first Sunday of Advent before we get too far in the season, is don't, as we can build perfect Christmases here, as we can build perfect realities as best as we can. And normally that ends up frustrating and somebody crying on Christmas Day. But as much as we try, don't let your heart grow numb. Don't let your eyesight go away. Keep watch and stand for the promise of God. We live on this borrowed time here, is that we know how it ends, but what God is calling us to is to lift our heads. But the word, if I had one for today, as we, we live between these times and we hear this word from Luke, it comes more from Jeremiah, is this promise that God has in store for us, this promise that should arouse hope within us. Now, one of the things I want to say is, is that in the modern world, we've sort of made promise impossible in two ways. In the modern world, promise, we, we believe in progress, right? We want to progress further into these things. We want to make progress towards um, eliminating poverty. We want to make progress in our work life. We want to make progress in, in our marriage. We want to make pro pro progress in establishing God's kingdom here on earth. We want to make progress in doing the good work. But the biblical imagination is not an imagination of progress. Because things slide two steps forward, four steps back. We don't make progress the same way we think we do. The biblical imagination is a world of promise. It's a world of fidelity to what God has promised to do and what, what God will do. It doesn't mean we don't do things in this borrowed time we have, but it means that we rest in the promise of what God is to do for us. The restoration. To see in that sprout that God is going to grow up our salvation and bring that about in the world. See, there's a the thing that as pastors will do, myself included, where we say, go and make this in the world. Go and do this thing. But it's not really for you. It's for God to do this. And what we do is we move into the promise of what God said he will do. What God will do for our lives and for our world. So when I give the exhortation, you, 
One, I set you up to fail. Two, if you're already doing it, you feel great. Three, if you're not doing it, you feel depressed and I don't have that type of power, but you might feel a little anxiety about it. But if we hold out before ourselves God's promise for us, then new possibilities become available more than like just pull yourself together and make a New Year's resolution. It's the promise that should be what holds out for us. But the second way in which we've made a promise impossible is we just don't do it. We don't think about promise. There's parent advice books that tell you never promise to your children. We don't expect that that type of fidelity could be true in the world. Don't make a promise. Of, and this goes back to, uh, as a pastor, I do weddings, and I always tell people, you have to have the traditional vows. You can say your own vows, too. But the problem is when we've learned is when we let people say their own vows, something comes out like, I will love you as long as I love you. Which is, if you've got good belief in yourself, great. If you've got realistic assessment of yourself, you know that the day where you won't feel that love anymore will come. Yet how you live in the promise of fidelity, the, the love will come back. I don't mean to be depressive about marriage. But, but the day when you rise and you say, you know, this is not the day for this. That we make promise impossible in the modern world. We don't hold out promises. Even, I'm sure, for some of us, the promise of God just sounds too far away. Can't we be busy? Can't we be active? Can't we make something here? But how do we hold out this possibility that God is a God who keeps promises? And one of the things that promises make sense in the modern world, and this is hard for us, is to accept that we have a grand storyteller and this is being told as if it's a story. If there is no story, promises don't make a lot of sense. But if God is inviting us into the story of the redemption and reconciliation of all things, the summing up of all things, as we talked about in Ephesians, then there must be some way that this is narratively moving. But to deny the possibility that there's a story to this, that there's a meaning to this, that we're going somewhere, is to deny there's a possibility of a promise to it as well. And so it's for Christians important to keep in mind that there's a plot to where we're living. And it's a plot that's main character is not us, but God. And God intends to fill, fulfill God's promises to ourselves. Promises make it that way. And so that's sort of the first challenge of this sort of movement is to live into those promises and to have hope in them. To expect that God will bring about what God promises to bring about. It's the first challenge of sort of this sort of scripture in this time is to see that God's promises are coming for us. The second is, is and this is why I like the church seasons, and we'll sort of end on this one, is to see going to church, the phrase going to church, as joining in that movement. When we go to church, we go to participate and to hear in that story. Reading these passages this morning, Jeremiah's line that the earth will be shaken, that God will return, invites us into this. See, the problem for many of us, and for myself included, is that church just becomes something we do and check off. And so when, in the course of life, if you ever say, hey, I'd like to invite you to church, it's why it rings so hollow, if you think about it. Come and do the thing I do to check off the thing that I do to make sure that I'm doing this thing. But... 
If we hold out that when we come into this place, when we come into worship together, when we come to pray together, when we come to sing together, we're enacting this story. We're becoming participants in it. We're reflecting on this story. The story is taking root at some place in the world. It becomes a little bit more meaningful. I remember for me, there was a time on my calendar where it said every Sunday, 10 a.m., this was before I got here, church. And then I changed it after time to 10 a.m. worship. And it actually changed something within me when I look at it now. Church, you should make up a person when you give this example as a pastor. Church was like, okay, yeah, got to do church. But worship, worship was something exciting for me. Worship was something to be involved in. And, And what we do in worship is we also sort of reflect on the promises of God as if they are real. I don't know if you noticed it, but if we sang those songs today, the songs we sang and reflected upon those words, we'd find that we're singing out the promises of God as if they are realities for us that are near to grasp. The kingdom of God is coming near. This is the reality that that we sort of try to enter in and worship together this season is to have a time where we hold out these hope and these promises so that we can see that they might be fulfilled in our world. They might come and take root in this place. And so this world that God has created, God intends to redeem. There's in science, um, they talk about first cause. What is the first cause? And if you study something like, hypothetically, the Big Bang Theory, a smart scientist will like tell you, we could get back to like, 0.009 second of when the universe started, but we can't get that final thing on like what lit it, what did this, what did this. And so medieval theologians, obviously before the Big Bang Theory, used to talk about the first cause, that God is the first cause of all this. But what we talk about on this Sunday with promise and hope, what God is fulfilling to us is, is another phrase they had, that God is the final cause. God is the final cause that it's an event that pulls us forward. It's the event that's, that's sort of the final thing that happens. It's, it's, and so, like, if you think about if you get in the morning to drive to church or drive to visit, let's say drive to visit a loved one, and you get in and you start your car and you turn the, the ignition in your car and the car starts and it begins to run and you move, it's easy to think of that in first cause phenomenon, right? I, I can't got my car, I started it. All these were cause of scientific mechanisms. But if you think about it this way, My desire to visit that loved one is drawing me towards that moment in time. It becomes a final cause sort of way of thinking about it. Magnify that up to what we talked about today. That what we await, the second arrival that kicks off these four Sundays, is a final cause that we're being drawn up in towards. It's one that brings us out. And so it brings us and inspires within us hope, inspires with us an alertness, and inspires us to keep an eye for the day that God will fulfill and renew all things so that we at last can finally be freed. Let us pray.